Good morning, everyone. I'm very glad to be with you and grateful to Alison for her warm welcome. It is true, I was once a little boy in the Sunday school here. Miss Allen will testify to that since she <laughs> taught me next door in the memorial room while Jesse Swan played the piano. Today is a day that the Lord has made, so we will rejoice and be glad in it. Let us all pray. We remember that today is a day of rest, the Sabbath rest commanded to us. Eternal God, we praise you for the rhythms of life, the changing seasons, the passing of day and night, waking hours and times of sleep for days filled with work and play. Teach us now to love our rest and to accept it gratefully. And let us remember that today, too, is a day of gathering in God's house. Eternal God, we praise you that we belong to a family of faith, a community of praise, a people who accept us and offer their gifts of friendship and support, that this is a place of forgiveness and healing. And let us remember that today is the first of a new week. Eternal God, we praise you for the new opportunities that await us, for a fresh start, for the tasks we are given to do, for the laughter, music, and fun that brighten our days. And let us remember finally that today is the day of resurrection. Lord Jesus Christ, you rose from the tomb while your followers still slept. We praise you that you are always risen in our world and that today you live in our hearts and will speak to us in this hour of worship. These prayers we offer in your name. Amen. The reading this morning is taken from Proverbs, chapter 22, verses 1 to 29, and I'm using the New Revised Standard Version. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. The clever see danger and hide, but the simple go on and suffer for it. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. The cautious will keep far from them. Train children in the right way, and when old, they will not stray. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of anger will flail. Those who are generous are blessed, for they share their bread with the poor. Drive out a scoffer, and strife goes out, quarreling and abuse will cease. Those who love a pure heart and are gracious in speech will have the king as a friend. The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, 
but he overthrows the words of the faithless. The lazy person says, there is a lion outside, I shall be killed in the streets. The mouth of a loose woman is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry falls into it. Folly is bound up in the heart of a boy, but the rod of discipline drives it far away. Oppressing the poor in order to enrich oneself and giving to the rich will lead only to loss. The words of the wise. Incline your ear and hear my words and apply your mind to my teaching. For it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, if all of them are ready on your lips, so that your trust may be in the Lord. I have made known to you today, yes, to you. Have I not written for you thirty sayings of admonition and knowledge to show you what is right and true, so that you may give a true answer to those who sent you? Do not rob the poor, because they are poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord pleads their cause and despoils of life those who despoil them. Make no friends with those given to anger, and do not associate with hotheads, or you may learn their ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Do not be one of those who give pledges, who become surety for debts. If you have nothing about which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? Do not remove the ancient landmark that your ancestors set up. Do you see those who are skillful in their work? They will serve kings. They will not serve common people. Jonathan Sachs is about to retire as chief rabbi. He's had an impressive term of office for many years and represents Orthodox Jews in the United Kingdom, and he's one of the most effective spokespersons for religion in the United Kingdom. I met Jonathan Sachs at a conference last year in Philadelphia, and I was impressed by his stellar capacity to strike the right note for any occasion. Not least, the timing of his jokes is as perfect as that of any professional comedian. He belongs to a long tradition of Jewish comedy, which is able to use wry humor to good effect. Sigmund Freud, another Jew, once described as a godless Jew, wrote a very good book on humor that is full of surprisingly good jokes. He tells of an elderly Jewish father who went to God to complain about his son. Do you know what? My son has just converted to Christianity, the father complained bitterly. What should I do? You think you have a problem, said God. Look what my son got up to when I sent him into the world. Ah, yes, said the Jewish father, so what did you do about it? Well, said God, I had to write a New Testament. Lord Sachs has his critics, including many more liberal people within the Jewish community, but his public contribution has been exemplary in many ways. He has a moral fluency that enables him to speak the language of our own culture 
but to bring it into conversation with his Jewish heritage. And in the advice he's recently offered to all other religious leaders, he tells them to become fluent in two languages, the language of their own faith and the language of our culture. In his writings, he reminds us frequently of the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Science and technology have made enormous contributions to our way of life and have brought about vast progress in medicine, travel, the flow of information, and living standards. But unless accompanied by wisdom, these advances can be divisive, threatening, and poorly distributed. We need, he says, both knowledge and wisdom, science and religion, analytic thought and moral intuition. These are like our two lungs or our the two sides of our brain. Each without the other is impoverished and lacking. Wisdom, moreover, is imparted in different ways from knowledge. You can get knowledge from a textbook or a classroom. You can learn it like a series of formulae that can be recited. Whereas wisdom has to be transmitted from the old to the young through traditions, texts, stories, families, and communities of faith. The book of Proverbs, from which Alison has just read, is probably one that we don't read very often. It's situated right in the middle of the Old Testament, and it comprises numerous sayings, many of which can be found in other cultures and traditions, especially Egypt. Part of the problem is that the church has never known what to do with this book. It doesn't seem to fit the familiar categories. There's very little reference to Israel and its history. The story of sin and redemption is absent. And it has no memorable incidents or stories that we can teach at Sunday school or easily recall. But perhaps we've ignored the book of Proverbs for too long. It's a, an integral part of what is known as the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, books which celebrate the wisdom of God displayed throughout the world, accessible to human beings and necessary for living well in this life. Other wisdom books include Job, Ecclesiastes, and some of the Psalms, as well as several of the books in the Apocrypha, that collection which was excluded from the Protestant Bible at the Reformation, but which is familiar to Roman Catholics and Anglicans. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that it's a serious error to move too quickly to the New Testament, as if the Old Testament was only a stepping stone to something better. He cannot call himself a Christian who does not believe the Old Testament. The Old Testament has its many riches, and if we move too swiftly from these to other themes of sin, salvation, and heaven, then we will miss them. So what about this book of Proverbs? It's all about living well in this life, makes no reference to the life to come, and it doesn't teach that this world is a staging post for heaven. Its concern is more or less exclusively with the world which God has made, with the here and now. 
And to live well in God's good creation, it says we need wisdom. This is practical and particular, and it's transmitted down through the generations by good example, teaching, books, and a study of the past. It's required by parents, merchants, judges, politicians, and next-door neighbors. You can't exercise any of these roles well without wisdom. So Proverbs gathers together sayings which are in circulation not only in Jewish but in other cultures. And it shows that God's wisdom is a universal project shared by people of other faiths. God's wisdom is available to all human beings and it's displayed in the natural world around us. There are some recurrent themes present in this collection of Proverbs. In particular, we're told that parents have a responsibility to teach their children because the household is the primary place where wisdom is transmitted across the generations. This requires discipline and can be the cause of tension, but it's something we need to stick at. It's not enough, Proverbs suggests, to adopt a laissez-faire attitude and to allow people to exercise their freedom or simply to be true to themselves. The self has first to be formed and shaped by the inheritance of wisdom. Only then is there a self to which we can be true. And acquiring wisdom is not about having a set of rules and applying it rigidly under all circumstances. You need discernment, skill, judgment. And sometimes you'll find yourselves in the dark and conflicted about what you should do. There will be times indeed when the ways of wisdom elude us. Just think of the book of Job. We are never finished learning wisdom and each human life remains incomplete in its search for God's wisdom. We also find a repeated suspicion of certain patterns of behavior in Proverbs. These include an obsession with making money, a neglect of the poor, the damage caused by an uncontrolled tongue, and the habit of laziness. Much of it, of course, is couched in the social world of a bygone age, yet its relevance today is still haunting. Lending money in irresponsible ways and at exorbitant rates. How much have we heard about that recently? I had to interview at the Fringe Festival last Sunday afternoon a financial mathematician I had great difficulty understanding most of what he said, but one of the things he told the audience was that most of the practices that recently caused the financial crisis were condemned as usurious by the church and by the Jewish community about 500 years ago. These injunctions and proverbs about lending and borrowing and the risks attached are therefore far from out of date. People today are encouraged to borrow money at absurdly high interest rates when clearly any benevolent and rational calculation 
or sensible bank manager would caution against such practice. And it's the poorest and most vulnerable who usually suffer the most. Then there's the uncontrolled tongue. Today we might apply that to the uncontrolled keypad. Words that are posted on blogs, tweeted or emailed are too often composed in malice or sudden anger or impulse. But once out there, they become viral and are not easily retracted. In the past, once we'd finished writing that angry letter, full of simmering resentment, we had cooled down sufficiently to rip it up and cast it into the bin, and we felt much better. But the internet is an unforgiving medium, and it's easy to say something misjudged that can be posted, pasted, and copied around cyberspace. And then there's laziness, another of the vices that Proverbs seems to regard as damaging to human life and unworthy of God our maker. The lazy person says, there's a lion outside in the streets. I might be killed. What on earth does this mean? It seems to be an excuse for not turning up for work or venturing out. Uh, Sorry, there was a lion outside in the street. It was too dangerous to leave the house this morning. Maybe this is the Hebrew equivalent of the dog ate my homework. Or my granny has died again. (laughs) The book of Proverbs insists that wisdom is good for each one of us. It's not just a duty we have for the world and other people. Wisdom will actually enable each of us to be happy and to prosper. Now we might worry a bit about the selfishness of some of these remarks, but that would be misplaced. God, it seems, desires each one of us to be happy. And we have a responsibility to love ourselves just as to love other people. Jesus, too, speaks about how we can each be blessed or happy. And in much of this, there's a therapeutic quality. There are plenty of examples here in Proverbs of healthy cognitive behavior. Many of these injunctions are about a positive psychology for your spiritual and mental well-being. Keep yourself busy, think about others, make yourself useful, don't be obsessed with money, mind what you say, take a delight in the world around you, don't overindulge in eating and drinking. All things that your grandparents might have said to you long ago, simple instructions, but if we keep them, we improve our chances of happiness. The search for wisdom, however, is not just for childhood. It's a lifelong project for the book of Proverbs. And wisdom is a feminine noun in Hebrew. And so wisdom becomes a feminine figure in much of the literature. 
A relationship to wisdom is akin to a love affair. We are urged to fall in love with wisdom and to cling to her always in both the good and the bad times. Significantly, the book of Proverbs begins and ends with two women who symbolize wisdom in different ways. The first woman is Lady Wisdom herself, crying from the heights at the crossroads and at the city gates. She offers her riches true and lasting to any who will become her children and cling to her. She offers life and wholeness and happiness to all her own. And Lady Wisdom is contrasted with other women who are seductive, loud, but in the end fatal in what they offer. The second model woman comes at the end of Proverbs. She is the virtuous wife whose praises are sung. It's a passage occasionally read at funeral services. And this second woman is also a symbol of wisdom in the way she orders her household, works hard and makes provision for the well-being of all its members. Let her children call her happy and her works praise her in the city gates. So the book concludes. We need these wisdom books of the Old Testament, not just for our own lives, but for the life of the world. Wisdom is everywhere to be found, and it's the principle of God's good creation. But this is a project we share with other peoples. And at a time of global and international problems, we have to find ways of making common cause with people of other faiths and traditions and cultures. There are three Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And we're all peoples of the book, according to the Quran. But sometimes Judaism and Islam have done better at blending work and worship, at uniting the life of praise with the life of the world, in combining the service of God with what we do in the everyday world and the common round. As Christians, as a church, we need to recover an emphasis upon the wisdom traditions of Israel and to recall that Jesus himself was also a teacher of wisdom. Almost everything he says in the Sermon on the Mount relates to the wisdom of God for everyday living. And of course, Paul speaks later about Jesus as the power of God and the wisdom of God. That should encourage us to return to the Old Testament, to reflect on its enduring message, and to commit to God's wisdom all our days. Thanks be to God for this word to us today. Amen. Let us come together in our praise for others and in our praise for each other. Let us pray. God of infinite and loving wisdom, we give thanks that we can come together into your presence this morning. 
and every morning. We give thanks that it is through your grace that we can meet with you in this place and in every place. We give thanks that it is through your mercy that we can seek you and you will be there waiting for us. We pray that you will guide us in our worship to seek you and to find you. God of the listening wisdom, we give thanks that you are a listening God who hears our prayers, who hears the cries of the troubled, who hears the doubts in our minds and the worries in our hearts. We give thanks that you are a listening God who is listening when we fall silent or have forgotten. We give thanks that you are a God who is listening even when we think we are all alone. We pray that you will give us the wisdom to listen to others as you first listen to us. God of the practical wisdom, you have given us your wisdom, but we often do not hear it. You have given us your word, but we often do not see him. You have given us everything, but we often do not know it or use it wisely. You have given us your son, but we often do not recognize him. We pray that you will give us the wisdom to see and to know, to listen and to hear, and to live out your practical wisdom in our own lives. God of the challenging wisdom, you have shown us how to live out your wisdom in our lives. You have encouraged us to be ambassadors of your wisdom in practical ways in your society and in our society. You have challenged us to be your wisdom and your way in this world. God of the challenging wisdom who demands our lives, our all, we pray that you will give us the strength and the guidance to live the work of your kingdom in our daily lives. God of the forgiving wisdom who forgives us when we listen but do not hear who forgives us when we look but do not see, who forgives us when we hear but do not remember, but who, forg who forgives us when we see but do not act or act wisely. We pray for your forgiveness as we try to live out your wisdom in our world through Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Go in the peace and the praise of God and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit rest upon you and remain with you this day and forevermore.